Drew Feustel has been a NASA astronaut since the year 2000. He has been to space three times. He's been on the International Space Station for six months. He has participated in nine spacewalks for a total of 61 hours in space. And I'm delighted to have him here on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Welcome. Charlie. I'm glad you're counting. I wasn't keeping track. <laughs> <coughs> I'm glad somebody is. Uh, pick one or all three of your missions and, and tell us about them. Well, you mentioned uh, being on the space station for six and a half months. That was quite an adventure. That was last year from March to October 2018. And uh, serving as the commander of the International Space Station for about three quarters of that time was a real privilege for me and a great experience to actually live in space for a long period of time. Uh, my first two flights on space shuttle were very different and very short relative to that space station mission, but uh, all opportunities have been wonderful and uh, we're doing some great science up there. And what has that science been for you personally? Uh, well, our job is to be the hands, uh, eyes, and ears of researchers who design experiments and then send them to space. Um, the space and, and, our, and our more significant role is to keep the space station operating to support that science. We consider it a world-class laboratory. So there's experiments from all over the world uh, from researchers who have sometimes worked their entire lives to send uh, send these uh, these things to space and and uh, ask us to carry out the work that's uh, that uh, you know to get the results that they need. So um, it's broken into six main categories: the work that we do, so biotechnology, technology uh, demonstration, uh, outreach events, um, earth science, human science, and uh, essentially space science. So we've got these categories, and everything that we do is designed to support uh, those activities in space. Now your background in education is as a geophysicist, mm -hmm. not as a pilot. How did you end up as an astronaut? Uh, don't really know. I just uh, <laughs> had a dream as a child to be part of the space program, the human space program, and uh, held on to that dream in my mind. I pursued uh, career choices and, and an education that I enjoyed. I liked geology and eventually became a geophysicist, uh, working in the mining industry in Canada and oil and gas industry in the United States. Um, but I always had the dream and belief that I would be part of the space program and, and I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time with the right competition. Well, how did that happen? You have to apply for this? Do you get... You just fill out an application. Yeah, and cross your fingers and see how the, how the, uh, the balls bounce. They, uh, when I was selected as an astronaut in 2000, I believe we had 5,000 applicants and selected 17 people. Um, the last time we had a selection in uh, 2017, we had, I believe, 18,000 applications and selected uh, eight people. So um, the competition's pretty stiff. I like to say it's better than winning the lottery. Uh, so, you know, people shouldn't lose sight of that and, and, and stay focused. But uh, I think as the future, you know, as we move forward with space exploration and as our opportunities become greater and greater, there'll be more chances for people to get involved. And, and I think eventually we'll see many more people working and living in space. Now, between the time you were accepted by NASA and the time you went to space was nine years. And when you finally went up there, you were fixing the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. It, yeah. Via spacewalk. <laughs> That's right. So we, uh, it was nine years before my first flight, six years before I was assigned to that mission, and then we trained for three years in preparation. This was the last time that humans would go to space to touch and repair the Hubble Space Telescope. And so we performed five spacewalks over five days, 
and uh, completed that work and the telescope's still operating. We installed batteries in 2009 that were certified for five years and it's been 10 years and everything's still working well. So I guess we got some of it right. Aside from the fact that you have you had a job to do when you were tethered to the craft, what is it like, aside from doing your job, to be doing that? Uh, it's a unique opportunity, there's no doubt. We, but I can tell you that because we train for so long and are so focused during that training period, uh, in, in the case of Hubble, over three years, um, for every hour that I worked in space, I trained for 12 hours underwater in a large pool called the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory at Johnson Space Center with a mock-up or a, uh, a engineering representation of the Hubble Space Telescope and the shuttle payload bay where we worked. So the point is that by the time we got there, even though it was spectacular to see Earth from space and have that awe-inspiring view of the planet floating by, circling every 90 minutes, um, we were there to do a job, and your mind consumes about two seconds of time when you first step outside of the spacecraft thinking, wow, this is amazing. I hope I don't fall to my death to the planet Earth 300 miles below, which is not going to happen because you're floating and traveling 17,000 miles an hour. But in just a split second, you realize that uh, you've got a job to do, and you've trained for three years to do it, so you immediately get to work, and you just focus on the task at hand. And it Really, we become so focused and, and get sort of tunnel vision on our activities that it's, it's important for our crew members that are still inside the spacecraft to um, tell us to take a look outside and take a look down at the Earth. You know, in my case, I remember my crew members saying, hey, we're passing over Hawaii. You might want to take a look. It's pretty cool. And, and it was. It was a beautiful sight to see. Um, but, but we're focused and we have work to do when we get there. You said 300 miles? Hubble Space or, Telescope is over 300 miles, about 350 miles above the planet. And your other two missions, how, same thing? So the, the second mission that I flew was on uh, Space Shuttle Endeavour, and we flew to the International Space Station. And the space station orbits between about 220 and 240 miles above the planet. So it's essentially 100 miles lower in altitude than the Hubble Space Telescope. It's also on a different orbital trajectory. So Hubble orbits the Earth near the equator, about 21 degrees off the equator, and space station is angled at about 51 degrees off the equator. How long is the, the tether, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. from a layperson? How long is that? Uh, when we're in the spacesuits working, our tether is uh, a, anywhere from 110 feet to 160 feet long, depending on the configuration we have. And, and do you always go to the maximum, or do you we give yourself some? occasionally go to the maximum, and if that happens, then we have to reconnect another tether to allow us to go further. So you can, you can exceed the, the limits of um, the tethers that we use on the space station to reach the outer portions that cause us to have to use a third to get out even farther. And how, how wide, how thick is that connection? The tether is, uh, it's a very thin wire. It's just a couple millimeters. It's just a, a steel cable. And it's on, a, it's on a cable reel that retracts. So as we move out, it extends. And as we move back closer to our anchor point at the airlock, um, it retracts and, and pulls back in. So um, we tend not to try to use that to keep us attached to structure. We, it's really bad form to let go and rely on the tether to hold you there. So that's our, that's our safety net. And if that fails, 
um, we're wearing what's called a safer or a, or a jet backpack that will allow us to actually fly back to the space station if we need it. But no one wants to use that and uh, I hope no one ever does have to use it. Tell us about the spacesuit. Obviously, when you're up there, it doesn't weigh anything, but when you're on Earth, how heavy is that? It's pretty heavy. So the spacesuit weighs about 350 pounds. Uh, 350 all Without pounds. us inside. So, you know, if you put an astronaut inside, you're closer to 500, over 500 pounds inside the uh, spacesuit, with the spacesuit altogether. So there's a lot of inertia to the spacesuit. We have to be careful about the way that we move in space. Um, on Earth, when we train with the spacesuit, we have to be lifted in and out of the, the large pool on a crane, on a crane deck, because we can't walk around in the spacesuit at all. You can't really move at all, I'm guessing. From You really can't move at all. It, it will pretty well collapse you if you try to walk around in it. How thick is the material that's keeping you from space? Uh, it's multi-layered, and it's, they're actually very thin layers, but you stack them up. Um, there's multiple layers, some that are designed to protect you from micrometeorites, some that are uh, designed to keep you warm, uh, protect you from the thermal conditions of space. Um, but really, it's, uh, it probably it feels like the thickness of a pair of ski pants. It's really kind of thin. That's, that's all the layers combined? Yeah, that's all the layers combined. Uh, the upper torso of the spacesuit is a uh, fiberglass shell, and then the arms and legs are what we call soft, soft, soft material or um, soft fabrics. Yeah. Now you're looking through some kind of plastic material. Uh, that is a Lexan uh, visor that, that covers our face. And how thick is that? Uh, that's, again, just a few millimeters. It's, it's not really? that thick at all. Yeah. I'm surprised that it's so thin. <laughs> we have two layers on that uh, so that we don't actually crack it. If, God forbid, the suit was punctured, mm -hmm. I assume you're dead immediately? That'd be a bad day. It depends on how big the puncture is. Um, the suit's only pressurized to about 4.2 pounds per square inch. So there's not a lot of pressure inside. You could easily, with a small puncture or tear in the suit, simply cover it with your other hand or a thumb or something or close your hand up. You would seal up the suit. And the suit's designed to feed oxygen uh, for us to breathe. There are some reserve tanks, some very high-pressure tanks on the suit, uh, pressurized at 6,000 PSI that will feed a suit leak for about 30 minutes, depending on the size, I think up to um, about a quarter inch to three-eighths of an inch of a hole. So we can survive for a bit and get back to safety if we need to. What's a bit? Well, 30 minutes if the hole's the right size. I mean. It's true, a, a, a torn or damaged spacesuit it could be catastrophic, there's no doubt. But you know, everything we do has, carries some risk. It's, it's not a zero risk job. Well now, there's all sorts of stuff up there floating around. You know, did you sure. use the word micrometeorite? Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of debris in space, there certainly is. And we track that stuff. Uh, we have the uh, Air Force Space Commands and other, and other organizations on Earth track uh, debris in space for us. Do you ever see things you're not expecting to see that are go, like um, flying by you? I've never seen anything fly by, but we see evidence on spacecraft of impacts from, um, from that orbital debris. And uh, for example, on the Hubble Space Telescope that's been in space for 30 years, um, when we're doing spacewalks and moving around on it, you can see little impact craters in the aluminum handrails. Um, some of those we try to identify for other spacewalkers so that the sharp edges there do not become a hazard when you're moving around the space station. It's critical to know where those things are. Now, if you're 300 miles up, there's no more atmosphere. Do I have that correct? There's no atmosphere at 300 miles up. In fact, the atmosphere ends at about uh, 40 or 50 miles above the planet. 
Now on Earth, if you look at a night sky, I think of it as being a very, very, very dark blue. But 300 miles up, are you saying black? When you look out into space from a spacecraft, it's just pure black. Yeah. And the you stars know. do not twinkle, do I have that correct? Uh, nope, they don't twinkle. Um, it's just because there's no atmosphere to obscure the light that we see uh, coming from those stars. Can you pick out constellations the same way you pick them out on Earth? Yeah. Yeah, because we're only, you know, if you think about how far away everything is in space, the nearest stars, those are light years away. Um, it's just not that far when, when you think about the fact that we're 350 miles up or 200 miles up, those things are still light years away. So the only difference really is the fact that we're not looking through the atmosphere like we do on the planet. I'm thinking of the, of the volume of... Uh, of the sounds around you. Now, when you're blasting off, uh, I've heard that people who are watching it from a mile away say it's unbelievably loud. What if you're in the spacecraft? Uh, not as loud in the spacecraft, believe it or not, um, <clears throat> mainly because we're wearing um, communication caps, comm caps, and then our spacesuit around us as well that's sealed up. Uh, the space shuttle is pretty loud. Uh, the Soyuz rocket is not as loud. The, the space shuttle uh, has seven and a half million pounds of thrust, um, which is you know what takes us off the planet. The Soyuz rocket's much smaller. It only has about nine hundred thousand pounds of thrust, so it's actually a lot quieter as well. Um, but you know when you're launching a space shuttle, you know you're leaving the planet. When you're on a spacewalk, do you hear anything? The only thing you hear on a spacewalk is mission control and the sounds of the fan of the spacesuit. Thank you. All right, so Andy, uh, went ahead and tidy up the crew lock bag just a little bit. Uh, and um, I have the uh, wire tie caddy ready to the front of my uh, mini workstation. And uh, I'm ready, I guess, for Drew to give me the power cable. There it is. And other than that, it's quiet, very so, calming. So when you're working with machinery or, or tools, whatever you're using, say to fix the telescope, you don't hear any of that? Um, you don't, but if you bang those tools against the spacecraft and you're touching it, you hear those sounds vibrated. You know, that vibration travels through the spacecraft, through your suit, and then into the air that's in the spacesuit. So you can hear those things. What if there's a medical emergency, not necessarily on a spacewalk, but if you're in a craft, if there's a medical emergency, what can you do? Um, we're trained for basic medical procedures and some advanced medical procedures as well. We always have a flight surgeon uh, in mission control to help us out with a large array of uh, resources available for us, everything from an AED, AED device to um, um, pharmaceuticals that we can use in case of emergency and somebody and procedures to deal with those events too. In the case that somebody um, really needs to seek medical treatment, and we don't have that, uh, what they need in space, we have the ability to return to Earth um, in as little as, say, two to three hours. Really? Yeah. When you do return, hopefully always under normal circumstances, after six months, um, can you walk around? Does it take a while to get used to that? Um, we are strong when we come back from space because we exercise every day, several hours, ex or two, two hours on average every day we're in space, but we do lose coordination and uh, it takes a little bit of time to sort of regain that capability. 
Your balance? How was your balance? It's a complete disaster for me, but uh, <laughs> after about four hours, I was able to walk on my own, and after about three weeks, I felt like I was doing, doing pretty well. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I'm wondering, when you've been up there, either in or out of your vehicle, have you seen, seen things you can't explain? You know, I haven't. People ask that question to me a, a lot, and I've heard other astronauts report about things that they couldn't explain or they weren't expecting, and it, it really has not been my experience. I've, I've had 226 days in space. Um, I can't say that there's anything that I didn't see or know what it was or have an explanation for, but um, I've also seen uh, images of that the Hubble Space Telescope shows us of deep space, and, you know, with the... With, uh, multitudes of galaxies that exist out in space, everywhere around us. I can't imagine that there's not possibility for life in space. I don't know what it is. I haven't seen it. I'm not saying it's aliens. I don't know. Uh, may all be bacterial life forms, uh, simple life forms. But, you know, I think the possibilities are there. I don't see how they can't be statistically. Before we go, your future as an astronaut and NASA's future? Um, I'm still active in the astronaut corps, and uh, I will continue to support the space program uh, in the ways that I'm asked to do that. I look forward to those opportunities. I've flown three space missions. I've had a great career over 19 years. Um, NASA's moving forward with a plan to uh, be on the moon by 2024. We've just uh, all celebrated the 50th anniversary of the 1969 moon landing, Apollo 11, and we hope that that interest, the excitement, um, will inspire uh, the nation and the world to continue to develop that intent and go back to the moon in 2024, build a permanent infrastructure, allow us to learn to live there, uh, utilize the resources are, that are there, learn all the things that we need to learn um, about building an economy by operating in space and then develop technology and capability to go on to Mars to, to keep pushing out and to keep uh, you know, reaching farther. Do you think we'll get to Mars in your lifetime? I think we'll get to Mars in our lifetime. And I think we will see boots on the moon uh, within the next, you know, in the near term, hopefully within the next four or five years. Well, I personally am delighted to hear that. <laughs> Drew Foisel, thank you for coming by. I appreciate your coming into the studio today. Thanks, Charlie, my pleasure. For Profiles, I'm Charlie Walters. Thank you for tuning in. Join me again next time.